On May 25th of this year, four Minneapolis police officers killed George Floyd, who was allegedly arrested for attempting to pass a, a counterfeit $20 bill at a local convenience store. Over the next several days, people of all colors engaged in peaceful protests. Those protests evolved into a mix of both peaceful protests and violent riots, which eventually led to the looting and destruction of the third uh, precinct of the Minneapolis Police Department, and also hundreds of local businesses throughout the Twin Cities, especially in the cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Over the next week, and in the course of events, lives were lost, livelihoods were shattered, and the suffering of thousands of people in the Twin Cities, which was already bad due to COVID-19 and its effects, that suffering was magnified significantly. So after some months, I think it's helpful to comment on these three, these three things, George Floyd's killing, the protests, and the riots. I want to speak briefly to the protests and to the riots and spend most of the time talking about the killing of George Floyd. I think we need to recognize that, that um, peaceful, nonviolent protests are an important civil liberty that we should in no way react negatively to. We have seen these throughout history, and they have been important tools uh, in working against injustices in a variety of cultures in our country and others. Many of us have participated in these protests, as have many business leaders, civic leaders, and religious leaders. On the other hand, violent riots in the form of harming people or destroying uh, property or, or stealing and looting, these things are not to be condoned by the people of God. It is not the way of Jesus, and it is not the way of his kingdom. Retaliation against enemies is condemned and denounced by Jesus himself. Jesus even condemned violence when a friend of his, Peter, uh, sought to defend and protect Jesus uh, from arrest. So Peter cut off, of the, cut off the, one of the ears of one of the men that was there to arrest Jesus when he was arrested prior to his crucifixion. So Jesus corrected Peter for that act of violence and retaliation, and Jesus himself healed the ear of the man that was there to arrest him. This value of not retaliating against violence and not retaliating against enemies was emphasized by Martin Luther King Jr. and other highly respected civil rights leaders. Martin Luther King Jr. acknowledged the, that he understood why people resorted to violence, but repeatedly did not condone it. It was an ongoing and very significant debate back then in the civil rights era, and it's an ongoing debate today. And I think it needs to be stated, as many civic leaders and, and uh, civil rights leaders and law enforcement officials have stated, that um, there are many of those who engaged in the, the violence, engaged in the, the harming of other people, engaged in the looting and the destruction of property, really didn't have any concern about justice for George Floyd or justice for systemic racism, uh, but seemed to be there primarily for their own benefit and to take advantage of the civil unrest and the times. 
Christians who follow Jesus cannot subscribe to those methods to enact change. Violence is antithetical to the person of Jesus Christ and to the gospel at its most fundamental level. Now, in regard to George Floyd, it's not my intent or my place to evaluate his character or his worthiness as a symbol of what has emerged as a movement. I know many others have. It's not my place to do that. We are not to judge the servant of another. By many accounts, it seems that George Floyd was a believer in Jesus Christ. And regardless of whether this is true or not, what happened to him was a tragedy at the deepest level that should move us towards compassion and sympathy towards him and his family and his friends and, all the, and others like him, but it should also move us to a degree of righteous anger. George Floyd should not have died. Regardless of whether he was guilty in the passing of that counterfeit bill, regardless of whether he resisted arrest or not, his life should not have been taken. Now, it's not my intent, nor is it my place, to judge the four police officers in regard to their motivations and their intents as they knelt on George Floyd and eventually killed him. Were they engaged in individual acts of racism? Did they intentionally kill him? I'm not sure that any of us are able to answer those questions. It is the place of the courts to determine the answers to those questions, and these questions are being considered by the appropriate government agencies. You know, Paul says that he was not even able to know his own hearts. How are we able to judge the hearts of others? However, I think we have to ask the question, do their actions reflect other evil transgressions? And I think that they absolutely do. As Governor Walls said after viewing the video, the lack of humanity in this disturbing video is sickening. Most of the people that I have asked about the video stated that they couldn't watch the whole thing. I watched the whole thing, and I at least agree with Governor Walls. It was a very sickening thing to watch. What happened was inhuman, and it reflected no concern or care for George Floyd, a fellow human being made in the image of God. Now, this is not to say that I am in the position of knowing what to do when someone resists arrests. It's not my profession. But it seems to me, and it seems to most anyone who has observed that video, that there seems that there are other less harmful options, and that it's the role of our legislatures and law enforcement agencies and the courts to figure that out. And this brings us to where I believe that we not only have responsibility as citizens of the United States, but especially as citizens of the kingdom of God. I believe that all three of these things, the 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 peaceful protests, the, the violent riots, especially the killing of George Floyd, created a massive global awakening of conscience. These events in the Twin Cities erupted into what is really a global reaction and movement, the likes of which none of the previous police killings of persons of color had done. 
And regardless of the individuals involved, the incident drew attention to a fact that I think without question is absolutely true, which is the disparity that exists through the creation and enforcement of laws throughout the United States between white people and people of color in regard to the policing, the arrests, the prosecution, the incarcerations, the probations, and criminal designations, which is a sign of a deeper and more widespread racism. This has been argued, not exclusively, but popularly, in the book The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And I think it's appropriate to, to look at that book and other writings around this subject because what we're looking at here specifically with the killing of George Floyd was a law enforcement and corrections issue. Now, she has her critics from the left and from the right about her claims in that book, but I don't believe that any of the criticisms have really debunked what is her primary argument, that racial disparities exist in the criminal justice system for nonviolent, drug-related, low-level crimes, even though the rates of those crimes across all the races is fairly consistent according to all the, of the data. And that these disparities that exist have led to a great increase in our prison population, comprising disproportionately of people of color, which has relegated these people to second-class citizens who have legally had their civil rights taken from them. Now, critics from the right falter for not acknowledging the large percentage of people in corrections as perpetrators of violent crime. And she has acknowledged that uh, since the writing. Critics from her left uh, fault her for not acknowledging all of the others that have come before her that have been trying to address the disparities and discriminations uh, in the criminal justice system. And she has acknowledged that as valid as well. But again, I believe that she has clearly demonstrated that the criminal justice system, primarily within the context of the war on drugs, disproportionately targets people of color over whites, and that this new system, regardless of its, of its intent, is essentially the new form of white oppression of people of color, just like slavery and just like the era of Jim Crow. Now again, this isn't an argument where determining intent is necessary. Just as we deal with personal sins in terms of specific actions or specific words that we have done, we must deal with corporate sins in the same manner, with specific words, specific actions. As Jesus himself said, the mouth speaks of that which fills its heart. What's on the inside will come out. So it's not necessary for us to determine intent in a lot of these affairs. While there may be some debate about whether or not white people in places of power intentionally established a national law enforcement system that was racist, the on-the-ground facts solidly demonstrate that bias exists in people of color in regard to policing, arresting, and prosecuting, and incarcerating individuals in the United States. And this is usually a very significant surprise for many people. We started 
Twin Cities Ministries in 2011 with the purpose to help uh, people coming out of corrections, uh, law enforcement, jails, and prisons with housing. And so we have been involved in this kind of work for almost 10 years. Many times we are introducing people to the ministry of Twin Cities Ministries, and they are completely surprised when we start to explain the facts and statistics that we see in our work in jails and prisons. These people are usually maybe prospective board members for the ministry, or, or maybe they are donors to the ministry. But they are usually well-off and well-educated white people that have never been exposed to the criminal justice system. And it's here where I want to begin to explain where I believe that we need to both repent and respond. Too often, white people who are not personally exposed to the effects of racism on people of color, as those who work in corrections or treatment or housing or public education or government or health care, those who are not involved in some of the, the daily life of people of color and who are experiencing the effects of racism and who do not have an ounce of racial hostility in them, they don't and in most cases can't even envision why they should feel responsible for what goes on in our country in regard to race and law enforcement and other spheres where systemic racism is present. And while we are going to deal with this in a whole sermon on, in Ezekiel in a few weeks, I want to take a few, a few moments to explain why we need to take responsibility for what is going on in our cities and nations, regardless of the personal role that we may have in what's going on, regardless of the personal role that we may have in the problem. So the book of Ezekiel is a series of prophecies spoken and written during what was Israel's most devastating era. After hundreds of years of idolatrous and immoral kings and populations, and after the ten northern tribes of Israel had been captured uh, by Assyria and spread out amongst the nations, the southern tribes of Judah were overcome by Babylon, which eventually led to the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the complete destruction of Solomon's temple. God's long-suffering had been pushed to the limit. He had run out of patience. And after generations and generations of idolatry and violence, child sacrifice and unrepentance, uh, God brought judgment upon that nation. As God promised in the law of Moses, if the nation remained unrepentant in their disobedience to the law, they would be destroyed and scattered among the nations. Well, that was happening, and it was happening during this time of, of Ezekiel. And the people of Judah were complaining because they were suffering judgment for sins their parents had committed. Indeed, they were. Their complaints were accurate. But this presented a problem because the law that God had given Moses also established that individuals could not be punished for the specific sins of their parents. God reiterated this principle to the people during Ezekiel's time and affirmed that the souls of those who were faithful to God and obedient to him, regardless of the goodness or evil of their parents, 
their souls would be saved. While the souls of the wicked, regardless of the goodness or of the evil of their parents, would be destroyed. And God also affirmed that the repentant person who had, who had been wicked for maybe years and decades, if that person repented, God said that he would save that, the soul of that person. Now, the generation during Ezekiel's time weren't in a really strong position because their actions and their words, they were really just as evil as the generations of those before. And in addition to this, we see that Ezekiel, uh, which is Ezekiel like the prophet Daniel, and the Wole read that earlier, the prophet Daniel's um, confession, and King Josiah, these, these three leaders during really tumultuous times in Israel and Judah's history, they acknowledged that their present states of distress were the, con were the consequences of previous generations of sinful Israelites. And so I think that there's some principles that we can deduce from what was going on here uh, in the time of Ezekiel. First, individuals will indeed be judged for their specific sins. And the eternal states of their souls is dependent only upon their faithfulness and obedience to God. Second, God does bring judgment upon nations for their national sins. These are not eternal judgments concerning the souls of individuals, but the judgments that eventually lead to the collapse of the sinful nations. This brings additional suffering to the suffering that's already being experienced in those nations due to the oppressive nature of sin against God and against others. Now, we oftentimes think of racism as mere acts of individual hostility toward others on the basis of their skin color and their ethnicity. Now, most people would never be classified as racists with this understanding. But if this is the only way that we think about racism, then we will find ourselves in, in very awkward places in our present culture. Racism as a form of discrimination and bigotry, is indeed individual acts of hostility toward others on the basis of color and ethnicity. But it's something more. And this is the dominant understanding of racism now. There's been a, there really has been a, a change of definition and understanding. And if you're not aware of that, uh, you can find yourself in, in awkward places, unable to explain uh, how you think and what you're doing and why you are... Uh, acting and speaking in a way in regard to racism. Racism is now understood as the system-wide oppression and exploitation of minority groups by people in power. And this system-wide oppression might not even be known about by those who are in the majority population, the people in power. And this is where I think Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow, I think this is where I think she makes another really great point. While she is quite clear that there are a lot of similarities between mass incarceration, the racism that's in the correction system now, and the previous systems of slavery and Jim Crow, she is also quite clear that there are a lot of differences, massive 
differences and maybe even more differences between, those, between mass incarceration and those previous eras of slavery now. And one of those differences is that the racism in the slavery and Jim Crow eras was intentionally racially hostile, but that as a whole, intentional racial hostility is not really present in our current day. Rather, she says, the great sin of our present era is indifference and apathy. We really don't care. The oppression of people of color has evolved, but it has never left. We are still experiencing the effects of slavery and Jim Crow. And those effects will continue to bring challenges to future generations, not only future generations for people of color, but of all people. We are all affected by these things. And things won't change unless there is a, a national repentance, a national response from those who have been largely indifferent to the problems that continue to face people of color in our nation. And after observing a few months since those events, it seems like that might be happening. Just as Daniel, Ezekiel, and King Josiah, who were themselves very righteous in the eyes of God, we must look around us and see the problems that face our nation in regard to systemic racism. We can't ignore what the previous generations and what our current generation is doing. Now, there are a lot of opinions about what the problems are, who is at fault, and what must be done about it. We don't have time to get into all of those debates now. We'll hit some of those as we work through uh, the next few weeks, the specific series in racism next summer, and really over the course of this 14-month period. But I, at this point for this sermon, I believe that we need to move forward with the following perspectives. First of all, we need to recognize that bigotry, discrimination, and racism exists both on the individual and systemic national levels. People should be held accountable to their individual acts of bigotry as God will judge and hold them accountable for them. And as the Bible repeatedly denounces discrimination and favoritism at any level, we should confront and address any instances of discrimination that we observe in our lives. Correspondingly, we need to acknowledge that the historical sins of slavery and Jim Crow and the present sins of systemic racism have had disastrous and generational effects on millions of people of color. While we may not be guilty of any racially hostile acts as individuals, because we are citizens of this nation, and because we have been called by God to work for the expansion of the kingdom here on this earth. That's what we pray for. It's what Jesus instructed to pray for. That's what Jesus is instructing to work for. We have to move forward in the examples of, of Daniel, of Ezekiel, and of King Josiah and acknowledge the sins of our past, repent, and work for justice and peace in our present day. Second, we must reject being motivated by so-called white guilt 
as if we were collectively guilty for the sins of previous generations of white people. It is important to distinguish between guilt and responsibility. We did not commit the sins of others, and therefore we cannot incur guilt for the sins of others. However, just as I have stated, just because we're not guilty doesn't mean that we are free of responsibility. We can't shrug off the burden that faces us. And we also have to reject any notion of being white saviors and any suggestion that the way forward is solely the responsibility of white people. Now, the world may have its arguments for why people of color should not be burdened to help white people overcome their conscious or unconscious mindsets and acts of bigotry and racism, but those arguments don't hold up for those who consider themselves to be members of the kingdom of God. And this is where we need to appeal to the vision of Jesus for his kingdom, his vision for his church. In the Ephesian passage Wole read, the text refers to God breaking down the dividing walls of hostility that existed between Israel and the Gentiles, all of the other nations. Now that dividing wall of hostility was initially the ordinances and the laws that God had set forth in the Mosaic law that set apart Israel as a distinct nation uh, based upon the, really the promise that the Messiah would eventually come from that nation. But the division and the hostility didn't stop with, with that law. In fact, racial and religious hostility existed between Jews and all of the other nations for, for centuries after the law was given in ways that even violated the law. And the oppressor and the oppressed switched back and forth depending on who was in positions of power. As we all should know, racism, discrimination, bigotry, slavery, and the oppression of minority peoples by peoples in places of power, these are not new things. And unfortunately, they will continue to be expressions of human cultures until Jesus' return. But Jesus' vision for his kingdom and his people is different. And while the passage speaks specifically to, to, to the Gentile nations and to the Jews now coming together and experiencing rec reconciliation, it speaks of all of the nations coming together as the dwelling place for God, as his temple, the, the people that he wants to dwell in, everybody, all nations, all ethnicities, all colors, God wants to dwell. And in, in God dwelling in all peoples, he brings all peoples together into one. And that's what Jesus said in his final prayers before ascending, that in, in the ability for the nations to come together as one, will they see that God is real? And then he transitions his teaching to specifically address the Ephesian church. Not only is God doing this on a, on a heavenly scale, all nations, all peoples for all time. He's also doing this in individual local churches, which are to be made up of many ethnicities and cultures. He says to the Ephesians, you are being built up to be the dwelling place of God. This is something that we are to experience 
together. And the instructions that follow for the rest of the book are instructions that we follow together as we seek to become the fullest expression of the indwelling God and his kingdom as we can. And this is where I would say that I've needed to come to a place of repentance. And on behalf of the church, where we've needed to come to a place of repentance. We have been doing things. We have not ignored this issue. But there are more things that we can do. There are more concerns that we should engage in. And because of the things that we were doing, honestly, as, a, as an individual and as a leader of this church, um, I felt like I was doing enough. And, it, and I was blinded to other ways that we could help. And I was especially blinded to the fact that um, our church doesn't really reflect Jesus' vision. Now, the way forward is not going to be easy. There are a lot of challenges, and we're going to make mistakes. But Jesus' vision should be our vision, not just for the heavenly reality, but for our church. And we fulfill this vision through the power of the gospel that lives in us, which is exemplified in Jesus. Now, Jesus came to his place as king of the kingdom of God, as head and chief shepherd of the church, through his dual status as God and human. As God, he possessed the full nature and power of God. He was in a position of power and authority and could have, if he had chosen to, exert his power to accomplish his will, forcing all of us to obey and, and submit to him under threat of extinction. He could have done that. But being God, this was not in his nature. Being God, he wanted to compel people to know and follow him on the basis of love. So instead of exerting his will through force, he came to earth as a human being and submitted his life to the service of other human beings, the very human beings that he had created, which ultimately brought him to the place of suffering as the most oppressed and most undeserving victim the world has ever seen. It is through his death for us, motivated by love, that we are compelled to follow him. But being God, he didn't enter into that role against his will or by force. He, knowing the will of the Father for his life, knowing that God cared for him, knowing, knowing that God loved him, and convinced that, that God was able to do what he said he was going to do, convinced of God's power, Jesus willingly gave his life as a victim so that he could manifest the power of God in his resurrection from the dead, which then again returned him to a place of power and authority as head over all things in heaven and on earth. And so we, we see here in Jesus kind of a template for all of us regardless of, whether we, of where we find ourselves, whether we are in a place of power or in a place of weakness, as being in the majority or in the minority, we see in Jesus the power and example to follow 
the will of God and experience the filling of God and expand the presence of the kingdom on this earth. Are we in a place of power as the world sees power? Do we have privilege as the world sees privilege? If so, we are not to feel guilty about having power and having privilege. For James says, we are to take pride in that status, knowing that it's going to fade away in service to God. And what he's saying is that, listen, if you're in a place of position and power and privilege, as a person in the kingdom, you are called to give that up in service to others, to use it for the benefit of others. And eventually it's all going to fade away. We are not to use our privilege and power to grow our privilege and power, to increase our privilege and power. We are to see that it's going to fade in service. Are we in a place of weakness? Are we in a place of disadvantage? Again, as James states, it is through weakness and humility just as in Christ, that just as Christ showed, it is in weakness and humility that God brings honor and glory and exaltation. Again, as we enter lives of service to God. The high get lower, the low get higher in service to God and to his kingdom. That is the way of Jesus. In contrast to the fading privilege for those in, in places of privilege, those in places of disadvantage, will increasingly find themselves honored and privileged. Regardless of where we find ourselves racially, economically, culturally, ethnically, Jesus calls us to committed service to him to fulfill the vision that God has for his kingdom and his church and to pursue unity with others. There's no one exempt from the responsibility and burden. If they consider themselves to be a member of the kingdom of God, no one is exempt from following Christ and following him in service towards others. But we do this through the humility and the peace and the forgiveness found only through faith in Christ and his promises. Under Jesus, we don't have the right to use our privilege and power for personal gain and selfishness. And under Jesus, we don't have the right to use our victim status to propel us to a place of domination and power over others. Under Jesus, we are all in a position to exalt in the status that he gives us as children, adopted children, into his kingdom. And to exhibit the gospel of grace and the gospel of forgiveness and service to those who are in the kingdom, but also to those who are in the world. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus and all of his apostles they would pray that we would grow in our love for each other and that we would grow in our love and our service towards the world. We are all responsible. And through this way of life, we will see the kingdom of God and fulfill the vision that Jesus has for his church, a multi-ethnic family in which God dwells. Let me pray. 
Lord Jesus, I thank you for, the, for your example. For your example, not just your example, God, for the power that you promised to give us through your indwelling spirit upon faith in you. And so, God, we can live in confidence knowing that you will empower us to live the way that Jesus lived. And so, God, with this, this great burden upon us, we pray that you would help us, that you would help us as a church to reflect your purposes for your kingdom and to extend in this world the vision that you've had for people. In your son's name we pray. Amen.